On gigantic King Kong feet. Zero hour is clumping through the bushes. <laughs> are you ready, gang? It's getting close and closer, and I can hardly wait. I can almost taste it. The lights are on. Shepard leaps onto the stage, and once again. Oh, I'll tell you this. You just can't be excitement. Hey, listen. Speaking of, uh, of total excitement. Now, now wait a minute now. I, I got into a real hassle with a guy the other day, George. And I, want you, I just want you to hear this. It was on the Joe Franklin show. And we got into a real hassle. And you know there's a belief around in this country these days that everything that somebody mentions is new. I mean, if, if, if people talk about drugs, it's like that's a whole new bag, you know. They just invented uh, heroin, you know, about maybe six, seven years ago. It never existed before, you know. And uh, everybody pleases, see. And so he says to me, he says, well, now you take ecology. He says, nobody ever worried about ecology before this time, Right. Well, what he meant is he didn't. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, wanna, I, I want you to listen carefully out there, gang. I just Seriously. I want you to listen to this. Now, if you really believe that the whole concept of ecology is a whole new bag, you know, the whole thing about preserving the, the, the you know, everything and the environment and all that stuff is new, I'm going to read something to you. Just listen carefully. This is very official, and it comes from a, a, uh, a journal published in New England and published in Camden, Maine, the, uh, I believe it's the New England Journal. And listen to this. Official instructions, this is a quote, official instructions issued for the settlement at Permaquid, Maine, in 1683, include the following. And this is a quote from the official instructions, in other words, the laws, really, of this tiny settlement in Permaquid, Maine, in 1683. Now, when do you think the country was... When was the country settled? That's right, about 1620, give or take a couple of years, right? That's pretty good, isn't it? That's good. Did you say 1927? George, what the hell's going on with your head? <laughs> Maybe you're right. <laughs> Maybe all the rest of it's just been old movies, you know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fantastic if history was invented by a movie maker late in the fall of 1917 and people have believed it ever since? <laughs> I never thought of it that way, man. You laid it on me. But uh, here we go. Listen to what happened in Permaquid, Maine in 1683. This is their rule. And, uh, you know, quote, no fishing boats whatsoever. Now, this is 1683. Now, I, I doubt whether there, more, there were more than 27 people in Maine in 1683, and they were all huddled together under the same rock. I can guarantee you that. If you know anything about Maine... And this is 1683. No fishing boats whatsoever shall throw overboard any garbage or guts, and that's with two T's, <laughs> the way they spelled it then, any garbage or guts or any other thing that tends to the damage of the fishery banks on forfeiture of their boats or vessels. Okay. Now, that was a law in 1683. Can you imagine what would happen today if we issued a law that tough? Because <laughs> you start throwing garbage overboard, we're just simply going to take your boat. My God, these guys, they'd be screaming up and down Long Island like you wouldn't believe, you know? 
and that was 1683. If you're curious, that was from the collections of the Maine Historical Society, courtesy of Major General Carlton E. Fisher, Winthrop, Maine. So that's very, or as they say, Winthrop, Maine. Uh, so it's very official. Now, all right, now, does this mean, <laughs> I mean, if, 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 how can anyone say they weren't worried about ecology? Now, obviously, 1683 they were. And people have always been. The only difference is that today that concern is getting a little publicity. But it was always there, man. I'll tell you this. Listen, that you know, speaking, if you think you've seen places that are... Now, I'm going to tell you an absolute truth story. I raise my hand and I say, man, listen, I'm going to tell you a true story. I come from a section of the country that was so polluted from the very time, from the earliest days I can remember, I'm a little kid, you know, that, that, that sometimes you could hardly see the sky. I mean, actually, you couldn't see the sky because it was, you know, blast furnace dust and all this stuff coming out of us. We had refineries. So refineries covered the entire horizon, far as the eye can see. You know, these big, these big flat round tanks, you know, that look like giant uh, aspirins laying there on the ground. And, uh, and, and, of course, all around, all these tanks, they had all these things, you know, with the smoke coming out of the top, and they're making kerosene and jazz, you know, the refinery. And back of that was this great, tremendous backdrop of steel mills. Well, of course, when everything is going full blast, the refineries setting up this jazz. The steel mills. Well, I'll tell you this, man. You didn't see the you didn't see the uh, the sky. What you were looking at was the underbelly of the smoke cloud. <laughs> that was called the sky. <laughs> and once in a while, you'd see a bird fall out of it. You know. Well, I'm going to tell you a true story. One afternoon, I just want to say, if you think you you know, if you think you've seen uh, pollution in your neighborhood, in your area, and now this is is hard to believe. Uh, but I'm going to tell you it for what it's worth, and it actually happened one afternoon, and it was late in the fall, just like, you know, like now. One afternoon, there was a, suddenly, outside, you know, I'm come home from school, and uh, uh, suddenly, outside, you hear all these sirens, you know, wah, wah, woo, the sirens everywhere, you know, they, people run out, and of course, we were always having sirens, because with all those refineries around, about every six or seven weeks, you'd hear, boom, Oh, the sound of heavy explosions are very different from the sounds of little explosions. They have your, what the hell's going, boom, bah. And there's a, there's a reaction that comes back, you know. You ever heard real heavy, a real heavy explosion? And you can feel the ground once in a while. You go, boom, boom, And this giant mushroom cloud would rise. And you know that one of those big babies went off. Oh, man. I remember... Well, you know, you get into that, and then you'd hear the sirens, see, from all over, and, you, and the people would all run. Well, on this day, you hear all the sirens, see. So, uh, like everything else, you know, you always would go out and take a look and see what the scene was, you know, what it was like, man. And you hear the sirens going, and, you, and, and we couldn't believe what we saw. I mean, a fantastic sight. As far as the eye could see, from one end of the horizon to the other, was a tremendous curtain. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm a, it's a curtain. A curtain of black smoke is rising. If you can imagine a curtain that stretches as far as your eye can go to the right and as far as your eye can go to the left, right? It was a curtain of black smoke that was going up, and in the black smoke were these tremendous tongues of dark red flame. You know, you've seen that kind of fire where the, where the dark red flame is roaring up through the black smoke? That's a hot fire, man. Well, everybody rushes down there, and what had happened was that the river, we had a river called the Little Calumet that flowed, and this was called the Calumet region, by the way, 
after the Calumet Indians. And the little Calumet River flowed right through that area there, through the steel mills, right through the refineries. Well, on this one day, obviously, it came to a head. Some guy either threw a cigar butt or a match into the river. And the river was on fire. <laughs> the river was on fire. Absolutely, a, a, the river. Well, if you think the Raritan River is bad, friends, I mean, if, can you imagine a river that just goes up in smoke? Well, they had to come. They had to come from miles around with fire trucks, and I'm telling you the truth, and squirt water in it. I mean, you know, there was no water in that river no more after all the pollution. You know, the pollution forced it out. There was nothing but glop. <laughs> and I mean, highly, highly, very volatile glop, you see. So it just rose up there, and I, I, I'm out there. That's the first picture I ever took. The, uh, the reason I remember this so vividly is because I had just gotten a camera for my birthday. Did you ever hear of a Univex camera? Yeah, you know. And, and I got this camera. See, it was, it was a great camera. So I rushed out. And I had my camera. See, my mother says, get your camera, get your camera. You know? So we get in the car. The old man, whenever there was an explosion, a fire, uh, uh, an accident, or a siren, the old man was out in the Oldsmobile. He had that baby in first before the first sound of the first crash had finished echoing. He loved to go wherever disasters were. He was attracted to disasters the way bullheads are attracted to dough balls. He could not, could not resist. And so we're down there, you know, and thousands of people are all standing in line and looking at the fire. See, the whole river's going up. So I took a picture of the river with my camera of the fire. It's a tremendous scene. Well, <laughs> I, I, we came back home, and on the way back, we passed this drugstore. And Mr. Cannon, by the way, was the guy that ran a drugstore. So my mother says, why don't we stop and take the film in and give it to Mr. Cannon? You've shot all the film, and, uh, and uh, maybe he'll develop it. And sure enough, Cannon says, hey, you got pictures of the fire? And I said, y you know, yeah, I just, he's great. So he had his dark room in the drugstore. Did you know they actually had dark? You know, he rushes back into the drugstore, and he's got these pots, you know, and he's pouring a hypo and stuff. And he brought out the, the negatives, and he held them up. And he says, my God, these are great. These are fantastic. He made two prints of the fire. Well, at that point, uh, we're in the drugstore, see, and some guy is walking through the drugstore, and he says, he says you got pictures of the fire? And I, and uh, and my mother says, yes, uh, Jeannie took pictures of the fire. He says, wait, don't go, wait. He rushes into the phone booth, makes a call, and would you believe it or not, for $15, I sold a picture of the great fire of the Calumet River to the Chicago Tribune. And it appeared on their second section, right there, tremendous picture. They enlarged it, and underneath it, it says, uh, a shepherd photograph. <laughs> Please, George, you just can't keep talent down. So you see, friends, in every in every evil there is some good. And ever since that time, I've always had a, a vague. Well, I've, I've enjoyed pollution because it, it it reminds me of my first and in fact my only real victory in life. I was at the right place at the right time, and more than that, with the right equipment. <laughs> You know, this is a serious show. It's about the ecology. <laughs> oh man! Hey, you know, you know. Speaking of, of uh, you know, being uh, being at the right place in the right time, wouldn't you love to have seen this? Now wait a minute, I got this thing here. Listen to this. Wouldn't you just once? Wouldn't you like to have something like this happen? Like, see, you're driving along in your car, you know. And uh, what what generally happens to you when you're driving along in your car? What? 
All right, you run over an old tire iron, right? You get a flat. Or, uh, you know, you just ride along and the rain comes. That's it. Nothing really great happens. Listen to this story from Sacramento, California. Just once I would like to be present at a thing like this. It was raining silver dollars on Interstate 80 near Sacramento. <laughs> now, Highway Patrolman Dave Howe sees this. He sees all this, you know, he sees all these silver. I haven't even seen a silver dollar. When's the last time you ever saw a silver dollar? But can you imagine a truck with silver dollars pouring out of it, man? You'd go out of your bird. I mean, I would. I don't know about you. I mean, you know, obviously money means nothing to you, but uh, I'm a coin collector. You know, I kind of like to collect silver dollars. <laughs> you can collect the pennies, the dimes. I'll collect, the, you know, the cartwheels. But uh, nevertheless, the silver dollars were pouring out of the back of this thing, and the, the patrolman, Dave Howe, drives over. He says, hold up, pull over. Your truck is leaking. What are you trying to do? Pull the highway. Well, sure enough, it had sprung a leak, and about 4,000 silver dollars bound for Nevada, Nevada gambling casinos were missing. They had dribbled out the partially open back door of the truck. What a fantastic scene. Howe and seven other highway patrol officers, three guards on the truck, and two state highway workers, immediately, you know, they rushed back, and they went looking for all the dough, you know. <laughs> it just dribbled out. You know, money is dribbling out. That's kind of a great picture. And the, I, I, it is sad to report, sad to report, that all but a handful of the silver dollars were recovered. So, I mean, you know, that is a sad note. It, it ends on a sad note. But, uh, you know, couldn't you imagine just driving behind it, you know? And, 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 that would be like a fantastic dream, you know? Can you imagine yourself? you got about $14 between you and the first of the month, which is nine weeks away, you know, and you're right down in your uppers, and you don't know how the hell you're going to make it this time, you know? And you're walking around, and your shoes are squeaking, you know? At the, and and you, you get in your car, you know, and you're... you're you're driving down to this place where you can get cut-rate tomatoes or something, you know, so you can eat. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and you got you, you pull into the shell station, you holler, you know, you look at the, at the tank there, and the, the, or the S.O. Tiger's looking at you, and you, the guy walks over, you know. You'd be surprised the way the look on a, on a gas station attendant's face changes when you, you know, you just look out the window and you holler, too. I mean, that, his face changes real quick, man. Uh, or maybe one and a half, or give me uh, 40 cents worth. That's usually what you do, you know. <laughs> and so you're driving, you're 40 cents worth, and uh, would you uh, would you clean the windshield? Yeah. Oh, no, no, don't check the oil. No. It's all right. That's okay. The oil's okay. Uh, check the pressure on the back tires, though, you know. At uh, 40 cents worth and, you know, $200 worth of work on your car, free, later, the guy, you drive out, and you're on your way to the tomato place, and you see this truck ahead of you. And at first, of course, you think it's... Because, you know, when silver... You don't expect silver dollars to come dribbling out of anything. Anything. Much less a truck driving ahead of you, you know. And the next thing you know, you see these things bouncing. First, you think they're bottle caps or something. You see those bottle caps bouncing out. And they're bouncing around. You look out of your window and you say, what the hell? It looks like... It must be some kind of a... You know, some kind of a, a little premium or something, you know. That's a silver dollar. My God almighty. With that... Can you imagine just running along behind this thing, you know, with a bushel basket? Holler your friend. Charlie, get out on the hood, quick! And you're going to... Uh, I'm sorry to report nobody was there at the time. God, bad news. Speaking of bad news, this I mean, this is WOR New York. And before we go any further, friends, uh, you can tell I'm very manic tonight, can't you? Very, very manic tonight. In fact, you can tell that Shepard is on the verge of what sounds like almost a total hysterical breakdown, right? Oh, yeah, man. 
Well, you know why? Tomorrow night, at this moment, I will be on the stage of Carnegie Hall. I am playing Carnegie Hall tomorrow night, and it begins at 8 o'clock. Carnegie Hall, tomorrow night, and man, we're going all, I'm pulling out all the stops. There's going to be stuff, I mean, the kind of stuff you just can't do on the radio. Shepard's going to do it all. Tomorrow night at Carnegie Hall at 8 o'clock, we got Sinful Street with us. We're going to make it, man. And if you want to come, there's plenty of seats yet. We've, we've put a whole whole thing aside for people who can only get to the box office, can't mail in. So you better get down there, man. The tickets are three fifty, four fifty, and five fifty. The Carnegie Hall box office. Get down there, and the well, you know where it is. Uh, it's one fifty four West Fifty Seventh Street. And they're also on sale at all Ticketron offices. So if you get the Ticketron tomorrow morning, quick, they still have tickets. Ticketron, wherever you are, Carnegie Hall tomorrow night at eight p.m. Now, do you have another goodie to whip on the folks? Who's in charge here, lady? Oh, good morning, Mister Policeman. Here, the Red Baron of Lufthansa German Airlines is in charge. I tell him he shouldn't hog all those meters parking a 747 jet in the street. When he gets back from choosing movies for Lufthansa 747 transatlantic flights, he will move the plane. I wish I could afford to fly to Europe. You can. November through March, fly Lufthansa from New York to Germany, economy class, round trip for only $240. Oh, and something that good, there must be a hitch. No hitch. You fly any day and travel on your own. You can land in your choice of many German cities, even land in one and fly home from another, and can stay 22 to 45 days. If you fly eastbound on Fridays and Saturdays, or westbound on Saturdays and Sundays, there is a $15 extra charge each way. $240 round trip November through March, New York to Germany on Lufthansa? Okay. Um, give me 42 dimes and I'll go down and feed your meters. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, listen, uh, I would like to suggest that, uh, you know, if you're going to make the show tomorrow night at Carnegie, a little suggestion here, just around the corner on 7th Avenue and 52nd Street is the old House of Chan. Great, great Chinese restaurant. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a landmark here in New York, and they have all kinds of... So you just want to go and get a bowl of wonton soup, or you want some of those... They have a lemon chicken down there that is one of the great classics of Cantonese cooking. If you've never had a lemon chicken, man, you haven't tasted the real Cantonese stuff. They have 22 chefs, and they're on the corner of 52nd and 7th Avenue. It's the House of Chan, and uh, they're open till oh, 1230, 1 o'clock every night, seven nights a week. What is it? What time, Hal? It doesn't say here, so what is it? 2 a.m.? 12. They're open to 12 midnight. That is seven days a week, and it's the House of Chan. The food is great. You know, before you go down there, I suggest you don't eat for about 24 hours. You know. I had to say it to him the other night, though. I was talking to, you know, Chan down there. And we were talking about the TV, see? And he says, you know, he's Mr. Chan, he's very Chinese. and He's an elegant Chinese cook and all, you know, very elegant gentleman. And it was one of the few times that Shepard has actually thought of a funny at the right time. And we're sitting in his famous Chinese restaurant. And we're all sitting there and they're eating all this great Chinese food. And we're all sitting around a table. And we're talking about television. He says, oh, te television is very funny. He says, you know, I cannot remember after I watch television what I've seen. It just comes in one ear and out the other. I just goes. You watch television and uh, you do not even remember the next day what uh, Johnny Carson has said. I said, well, that's true. It doesn't stick with you. It doesn't stick to the ribs. Mr. Chan, just like Japanese cooking. Oh, that's so good. Japanese cooking. Oh, that's very good, very good. Oh. <laughs> 
like that sound, don't you, George? You know, it's funny how, pe- how some people just absolutely hate the sound of a kazoo. They really do. They, they get red hot about it. And other people love the sound. I guess, I guess, I, I suspect the older you are, uh, now, age is not really a chron- chronological thing. You can, you can, you know, as, uh, you know, you can be 45 years old and only 12 years on the calendar. And on the other hand, you can be, you know, you can be 45 and be roughly three in your head. Uh, I've had that problem. I've worked for guys like that. But uh, <laughs> that's what the, all right, all right, I'll hit the, hit the money button, please, George. You know how funny I felt. I haven't had a job interview in seven years. You seemed a bit edgy this morning. You should have taken aspirin. But I didn't have a headache. I felt a bit edgy, so I took Compose. Compose. Famous for temporary relief of occasional simple nervous tension. He kept me waiting a long time. But when I finally saw him, he was real great. A bit edgy at times? Help take the edge off with Compose. Sweetie, take off your golf cap. You're in the house. It looks kind of jaunty. Jaunty? Go, sweetie again. What's with your head? Dandruff. And I used a dandruff shampoo two days ago. <laughs> Maybe yours is tougher than plain dandruff. It can be psoriasis. <laughs> See your doctor. Sorex medicated shampoo. Used regularly. Helps relieve flaking and scaling. Sorex. P-S-O-R-E-X. Tougher than plain dandruff. Where's the jaunty golf cap? I used my head. And Sorex. Sorex mm-hmm. shampoo. Good. Tougher than plain dandruff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of the idea of Sweetie walking around the house with his golf cap on because he's got dandruff that don't stop. <laughs> what a sickening thought. Oh, man. When will it ever end? Well, the point is it will never end. That's one of the great things about it, you know. There's no no way for you to say it's, it's ever going to end, you know. But uh, <laughs> let's see. We've, let, we've done Hunter's Chin. Yeah, Wolf's. How about Wolf's Kasha, huh? How about Wolf's Kasha? I think I'll take some Kasha down to the house of chance. See if he can do it in a sweet and sour sauce. Yeah, Wolf's Kasha. And if you haven't tried this delightful dish, friends, Kasha. Kasha. Kasha, come sit upon my knee, my little chickadee. My little Russian vixen. Kasha. That sounds like some chick I should have known but didn't. However, uh, or maybe it sounds like a chick that I, I uh, had I known her, it would have been problems. However, uh, Kasha is really, you know, it's not a chick. It's a, especially Wolf's Kasha. It's a, a, a roasted buckwheat grain. In fact, it's called buckwheat groats. You remember the groats? Remember a few weeks ago when all those groats captured that Swedish airliner? You remember that? Don't you remember that? Angry, resurgent. Oh, no, that's, I'm sorry, that's a misprint. But if uh, you would like to try Wolf's Kasha, you'll find it in your supermarket in the kosher section. Yes, it says it's probably sitting next to the kafilta fish. Little wolf. Little wolfy Kasha sitting there with his little feet pulled up, sitting next to the kafilta fish. So, uh, you try it. You'll find it's fun. You can make uh, Kasha ice cubes. Any, you can make it into almost anything. Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah, mix it with your strawberry Yoo-Hoo. It's terrific. And they have a, they have a recipe book. Says for a free copy of Wolf's Kasha Cookbook, write to Wolf's with three F's. That's W O L F F F S. That's the Ukrainian Wolf. To me, M E. That's box M E. W O R New York one O O one eight eight O O one one O eight. Achachonya, Rasmatazi, Rudy Tuti. Hey, get set for the rugged winter driving ahead. Uh, during the, is Mayor Lindsay listening? 
Every year it seems like everybody wants to lynch Lindsay every time it snows in this crummy town. I mean, this is the only town in the world where they blame the snow on a mayor. So, Lindsay, are you get ready. Get set for the rugged winter driving ahead, Lindsay, during pick-a-pair time at your local General Tire headquarters. And if he wonders who you are, tell him you know me. I'll fix it up. You say, hey, you just look like Lindsay. See, that's funny. Everybody says that. Take your pick. Winter tires start as low as thirty-seven ninety per pair. And regular tires start as low as thirty-five ninety per pair. I guess winter tires are different from, you know, regular tires. Uh, what is the difference? Uh, in Maplewood, see Dicker Herb at World Tire Company, 1725 Springfield Avenue. Dicker Herb. Herb's the short, fat one. The thick glasses, you can recognize him. He cries a lot, but you sneak up quiet on there and don't scare him. He'll be all right. You know, I'm thinking about that, all that dough pouring on the back of that truck. Did you ever find any money? No, come on. Don't don't fake it. Did you ever find any money? No, I mean, actually find dough. I mean, actually walk around, and all of a sudden you find dough. Well, you know that, that, uh, that some guys walk around this town, and all they do is look down for money. And uh, and you can do it. I mean, if you if you really uh, you know if you really stick with it, and uh, you don't have to declare it either. And uh, there's this one guy in town that, that I read about. Now, of course, you can't trust the papers. You know how they are. Do you know that if you believe the papers, my radio show is not even on in New York? Do you believe that? They do not list it in the Post. No way. I'm simply not there. So you know that's a great gap, Post. I am here. Whether you like it or not, you crummy rag, I'm here. So as far as I'm concerned, you don't exist, Post. You're only good to put under guinea pig cages. Ah, chachon, you And even then, you don't do so good. It soaks right through. Get the worst jigsaw. You got the worst crossword puzzle in the business, Post. All them four-letter words. Ah, And Bob Williams, when are you going to learn how to write? You sound like a concrete block rolling down a, a flight of stairs. That prose sings. Oh, He's always looking for significant shows. It's been years since I've seen a significant show. When are you going to write a significant column, Williams? Oh, How's that for dealing with my future here in this town? <laughs> oh, the post can destroy you. Look what they did. Well, I, I, I just have to get back in the swing here. I, I've just been thinking about that dough. And uh, I did find some money once, and I'll never forget it. it. It forever gave me a sense that any minute now something great was about to happen. Now, if you walk around... Well, I'll tell you about the guy that I read about. He, he averages roughly $11 a day. Averages $11 a day just walking around and looking down at the sidewalk. That's not bad, you know? I mean, uh, you know, I, have, I I know at least three talents in this town who haven't averaged $11 a day since they had a paper out. But uh, nevertheless, the, the facts are that this guy averages about 11 bucks a day just walking around town looking down at it. And, uh, you know, just looking at the ground. And, uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, I, I, you see pennies on the street. You know, people just don't pick up pennies. They just don't. But uh, one day, I'm, I'm just going to tell you a little story. You know, it's kind of a... One of those great little momentary things that happen to you. And for that, I say that if, if something really good happens to you once, unexpectedly, you can be euchred into believing that's the way life is. You know, it can be a terrible thing, ultimately, see. 
but uh, what what happened to me is I was at this big fair, you know, one of these, you know, typical like county fair or something. And uh, I was with my mother and father. I was about five, maybe six. I was really little. And uh, that's the worst time because, you see, if something great happens to you at five or six, you begin to think that's what life is about. Or if something bad happens to you, you never get over it. Not really, you know. If your old man uses you like a football, you know, and practices drop-kicking with you, you don't quite forget it ever, you know. But uh, anyway, I'm walking along, seeing, and I'm with my, you know, the parents, and they're walking, and it's night. It was night. I remember the scene vividly because it was such a, you know, such a fantastic moment in my life. It was night, and uh, we were walking along, along the midway uh, of this, this fair. You know, they have all these these games where the guy says, uh, guess what number the thing the wheel's going to stop on. You know, he says, come on over, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And uh, we're walking along, and uh, my kid brother's whining, saying, I want to rest, my feet, It's late. See, we've been there since, oh, maybe 2 o'clock the preceding morning. When my old man went to anything like that, he stayed till they closed it up, and he came in when they opened it. So we're walking along, and uh, I don't know what made me do it. There was a great big pile of little cardboard boxes, you know, like the kind, like cheap rings and watches come in, just crummy little uh, Japanese-type cardboard boxes, you know, the kind that they put prizes in. And uh, it was it was next to this big uh, uh, tent where they were, you know, they had these games where the wheels were going, see. And I'm walking along, and, and uh, they had a big pile of them. It must have been about four foot high, about six feet around, and there was a guy sweeping them up. I don't want these boxes. Just a lot of little old boxes, about the size of matchboxes. See, and he's sweeping them up. See, and he's 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 burning them, and the, he's sweeping them up, and he's shoveling them up, and he's putting them into this wire basket that had a fire going. He's you know burning up the stuff. He's cleaning up the area. He's policing the area, right, George? You know what policing the area is, right? That's the correct term. You and I both know about that term. Yes, indeed. I have policed areas in my time, and nothing to do with cops. Yep, that's right. Strip them down. I want you guys to police the area. I want to see nothing but elbows. And, well, that's another story. And uh, so I'm walking along. I see this pile there of stuff burning. And uh, something made me do it. I just, just picked up one of these boxes. I'm about five or six, you know. And I pick up one of these boxes. It's a little box. You know how kids do. And I'm carrying the box now. I've got a box. We must have gone another half a mile. And finally, my mother says, I'm going to sit down. My feet hurt. You're just going to have to stop for a while. The old man never stopped. She said, I'm going to stop. And Randy's crying, so let's sit here for a while, and then, you know, we'll get our bearings, and then we'll finally go to the parking lot. So we sit down on this bench. I sit on the end of the bench, and my kid brother's next to me, and the old man's walking around looking at the scene. And at that point, after carrying this thing for an hour, I opened up the box. And in it, neatly folded and creased, is a brand spanking new $5 bill. Well, you know, five dollars. I mean, you know, to a guy who's about six, that's the equivalent of, you know, the double, triple, total, unbelievable jackpot. In fact, that's <laughs> not only when you're five or six. When you find five bucks, you ain't going to forget it quick. Right, George? So I picked up the, you know, five dollars. Well, I made a classical mistake, which has been pretty much the story of my existence. I made a classical mistake. I said... Wow! I said, look at this. Hey, Ma, look at this. My mother says, what have you got? She says, why did you get that? I said, what's in this box? I found this box. She says, five dollars. With that, the old man says, five dollars. Well, you found five dollars. I said, yeah. 
He says, well, here, I'll take care of it so you don't lose it. He says, you don't want to lose it now, do you? Achachonya, Erasmus, a classical mistake. I've learned since, of course, there's a lot of stuff you, do, you just don't blab about. If your big, fat rubber mouth would stop moving once in a while, maybe you'd get ahead. You ever had that feeling? <laughs> Have you ever sat there and said something? You're just sitting there talking, and you keep saying to yourself, Why the hell am I saying this? Why don't I stop? I'm doing it again. I'm wrecking the whole deal. Blah, 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 blah. You're talking away. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, the fatal error. I bet Nixon has that problem. I bet every politician has it. I'll bet Nixon. Every time Nixon says, I want to make this perfectly clear, I bet something says in this way, Damn it, you weren't going to say that again. <laughs> I'll bet it does. And I'll bet after every... In fact, if you're, if you're an accomplished performer, you know, if you've done a lot of performing, and let's face it, I have spent my life doing that, uh, you, can, you can tell when you watch a guy when he's fighting against doing something that he always does, and other people have told him that he shouldn't do this. You could see him fighting. For example, there's one actor, uh, who uh, a well-known actor, who has hand problems. Now, what is a hand problem? Well, that means whenever he starts going, you know, when he starts, you know, tra- talking with his hands, see, very distracting. Not only is it distracting, it's simply bad technique. You see a lot of this on television. You see a lot of bad performers that are doing TV commercials. You know, they start doing it with the hands all the time. Somebody ought to say, look, before we make the next shot, Charlie, I'm going to tie your hands behind you. I'm going to get a, you know, pair of, pair of cuffs behind you. Well, well, I can always tell when his actor's fighting it. See, he'll go halfway through a scene, and you can see his elbows twitching. You know, there's something that says, no, keep, for God's sakes, keep your hands down. Quit flapping your hands around. You know, you look like a... You look like a flock of pigeons taking off. Now, come on, you you ain't you ain't chicken little. You ain't gonna flap your wings. And then all of a sudden he'll get he'll get deeply involved in the scene. And flappity flap flap on goes his hands again. It's shot. He he can't do anything. You know you can't fight against it. And uh, you, you get so you know these things. See, well I'm sitting there thinking. You know at that moment at that moment in my life I should have learned keep your fat rubber mouth shut. Opening your trap. Uh, about that dough, you blew it again. Well, there, there, are, you know, you, you fight against yourself. You, you, you fight and you win. You fight and you win. And sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you're just, you just, you just. Have you ever been consumed with the desire for revenge? Now, some carry it out, and the rest of us just walk around, and it, it cooks in your head. How many times have you thought of, of, of sweet revenge, of various things you would like to see done to various guys, and you imagine yourself doing them? You know, it, it, uh, I say that a man is beginning to really get old when he doesn't have those thoughts. <laughs> now, how's that for a new definition of maturation? Or let's, let's put it this way, uh, advancing senility. That the, oh, listen... Uh, it, 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 you, it, because you see it involves something very subtle thing and I've always you know, once in a while you hear great moments of true revenge and what really happened true revenge it's like you know it's like a, a third string quarterback is traded off waved out of the club and he comes back two weeks later and just just runs all over the club that kicked him out that must be a great feeling you know, Gary Quazzo or somebody comes back and he he, 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 
he goes, he, he completes 26 out of 31. You know, again, <laughs> 492 yards and then scores two touchdowns himself and then just walks off the field. What a sense of, you know, what a sense of gratification. Well, I just would like, for all of you guys out there who happen to be revenge fans, any of you revenge fans out there, see, revenge can be just a, a too often revenge is not subtle. I mean, you know, it's like you go up and you hit the guy in the mouth. That's not revenge. That's just plain violence. But I mean revenge. Sneaky revenge. And for all of you out there who are revenge fans, I'd like to uh, give you a little... Uh, let we, we should salute this unknown artist in the field of revenge. And it happened in Germany, West Germany. Guests at the wedding banquet excused themselves. Listen, the guests at the wedding banquet, see, they're all sitting there scoffing away. All of a sudden, they jumped up and ran out. Guests at the wedding banquet excused themselves hastily and left hastily because somebody had spiked the goulash soup strongly with castor oil. Now, I don't know whether you know what castor oil will do if taken in sufficient quantities. That's right. If you think you've seen action, friends, I want to tell you, I want to tell you, the groom could not get his car out of the garage. On top of that, the groom could not get his car out of the garage to set off on the honeymoon because someone had cemented up the locks on his car. <laughs> Poured cement in the lock. And then a stink bomb went off. And an enormous pool of wet tar appeared outside the bride's front door. But it is a case of a jilted lover, explained the father of the bride, asking for anonymity. My daughter was... Well, she was very friendly with a young man two years ago, and he never got over the breakup. Well, I kind of like that guy. I mean, that's a stroke of genius, pouring wet tar in front of her house so she couldn't get out, you know, and get in the guy's car. Well, you know what happens, you know. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to draw diagrams for you, but I just like the idea of everybody jumping up and running out with that castor oil. Well, now, I, I really shouldn't... <laughs> that's... that's kind of bad news. I, I, I don't want to pursue that, sub, that subject, not, not at this time. I mean, you know, this is a... It's, it's not quite the time for it, but the revenge takes many forms. And, uh, and for the, we've never discussed revenge on this. I don't call for talking about it. Great moments of revenge. Well, I had one great moment of revenge, which I can honestly look back in my life and say, I really had great moments of revenge. Is I remember one time... It happened in the Army. It happened in the Army, and it was a great moment. You'll appreciate this, George. Well, I, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but three times in my checkered Army career, I lost stripes, which I had earned the hard way. You did it twice, right, George? Well, the first time is a terrible shock. The second time, well, <laughs> you get mad, but... The, I want to tell you, you go out of your bird the third time, because the third time, you know, there's hardly no coming back after that. Well, here I am, you know, I have, I have, I have gotten, after, after two and a half years in the Army, you know, I've lost my stripes three different times, and the third time was just a terrible scene. This first sergeant, it, I don't want to even go into the gruesome details, but I had a real fantastic scene with this first sergeant, see, and, and he says, all right, corporal. He says, all right, Corporal, we'll see who's got the last laugh, Corporal. And he turned and walked into the CO's office. He came out like eight seconds later and says, Private Shepard, 
That's all I had to say. I turned and went back to the barracks and proceeded to take all the stuff off my field jacket once again. Well, one year later, just before I'm getting out of the Army, Shepard is standing in a chow line in a nameless separation center that was a hellhole beyond all comprehension. We're all standing in this line, a whole bunch of soldiers I never saw before. And this guy behind me keeps prodding me. You know, he says, you know, I could feel his, his mess kit hitting me in the kidney, see? And I turn around, I says, will you cut it out? What are you trying to do, Mac? And he says, I'm hungry, get moving, will you? And I can't believe my eyes. There behind me is my ex-first sergeant. And on his field jacket was this big, dark green place where he had lost all them rockers, all them stripes, all them diamonds. There was nothing but a lot of little holes where this where the thread had gone through. I said, Zuckerman! Uh, Shepard, isn't that right, Shepard? I said, yeah, how are you, Zuckerman? Private Zuckerman, how are you? By that time, by the way, I did the fantastic work. I had risen back to the rank of PFC. <laughs> I says, PFC, Shepard, please. He says, what have you got for chow tonight, Shepard? I says, Private Zuckerman, it looks like SOS which is just like we had in Company K, under your jurisdiction. <laughs> That's wait your turn, Jack. Yeah, don't forget, Carnegie Hall, tomorrow night at 8. Bum, ba -dum, bum. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom, House Majority Leader Hale Boggs of Louisiana, and United States Representative Nick Begich of Alaska are missing on a flight from Anchorage to Juneau. They were traveling in a light plane, and the pilot had taken a route lined with mountains. The two congressmen were on a campaign trip for Begich, and the only hope held out for them is that somewhere along the route they landed to make speeches, but that's been a long-shot guess. Two other persons were aboard the plane, Russell Brown, an assistant to Begich, and the pilot. Boggs was in Alaska campaigning for baggage. Three inmates of the Queen's House of Detention sawed through bars of the third floor window and made good their escape tonight. A fourth inmate also made the break, but he was captured in the prison parking lot. The escape came only 30 minutes before the 9 p.m. lockout. Prison officials at first reported only one SKP, then it was discovered that three were missing. A bomb explosion in the new Sheraton Hotel in Buenos Aires has killed a Canadian woman and critically injured an American. Police suspect that the bombing was the work of supporters of former President Juan Perón, who fled that country and took sanctuary in Spain in the mid-50s. Some time ago, there were reports that he had been granted permission by the Argentine government to return home, but nothing recently on that. Two New York college instructors are among five persons arrested today on charges of conspiring to smuggle $2.5 million worth of cocaine through Kennedy Airport. They're identified as 35-year-old William Etra, who teaches television and cinematography at NYU, and Stephen Hochberg, a creative writing instructor at Staten Island Community College. According to customs agents who made the arrests, the five suspects used women to fly in the stuff from Bogota, Colombia, concealing it in suitcases containing false.